Well, this morning we start a study of the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians is a book written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison. Uh, Paul also writes the book of Ephesians during the same period from the same prison cell. So Colossae is a city that is about 120 miles east of Ephesus. Paul was in Ephesus for three years, and as he was there, people came from the surrounding area to hear him and to hear the gospel, and they were converted. And one man named Epaphras from Colossae heard the apostle Paul's message, repented of his sins, came to faith in Christ, goes back to his small city, and a church is established at Colossae. Paul is subsequently arrested, put into a Roman prison, and Epaphras goes a great distance across the Aegean Sea to see Paul in Rome. He hears from Paul, Paul's his mentor, his theological guide, his pastor, he teaches him, and Epaphras will go back and forth between Paul and his city. And so while he's in Rome, he tells Paul that the church of Colossae is doing well, but there are some issues, and he unpacks the issues, and one of the main issues that we'll be addressing is something that's been referred to as the Colossian heresy. The Colossian heresy is hard to define, but it is a combination, an amalgam of legalism with layers of subjective mysticism that gloried in the worship of angels and visions and dreams and all types of issues, but did not glory in Christ. And so Paul writes the book of Colossians to correct and encourage and to teach the people of Colossians. It's a beautiful little book, four chapters, and we're going to enjoy it so much. I love this book. So listen, though, to Colossians 1, verses 1 through 7 as we begin this morning. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Well, this passage contains a celebrated truth that goes like this. The mark of the Christian is faith in Christ Jesus and love for all the saints. And this faith and love are heightened, undergirded, blown into a white-hot flame by the hope of heaven and the continuous application and understanding of the gospel of grace. It's basic, it's fundamental, but it's very important. So, so faith in Christ and love for the saints are the marks of a Christian, and they're strengthened by the hope of heaven and by the ongoing application and understanding of the gospel. Verse 3 says this, I always, always, I always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Always. Now, relationships are hard. 
Being with people can be very difficult because we're all sinners. But Paul says here, always, always. C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Four Loves. It's a monumental, great little book. And Lewis says this, one paragraph, let me read it. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless and airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Well said. To love is to be vulnerable. If, if, you, if you want to be hurt, have friendships. If you want to be hurt, get married. Have children. Now, I read this. It says, it says, don't love anything, even an animal. When we buried our last dog, I looked at my wife and I said, let's don't do this again. It's hard because usually you've outlived your dogs. So our daughter and son-in-law have a dog, and we've adopted that dog. It's pretty sweet. But, but, but to, to love is to hurt. And yet Paul says here to this church, I always remember, always, with great joy, I always remember. It's, relationships are hard. But yet God has called us to relationship. God is a community God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all time. He's called us into relationship with each other. And, and Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, this incredible statement. Somebody reminded me of this this week as I was talking about the text with him. 1 Thessalonians 2 uh, verse 19 or 9. Here it is. He says, we, we, he says uh, for, for what is our hope or our Joy or our crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, is it not you? For you are our glory and you are our joy. First Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. I'm going, wow. Relationships are hard. Paul says, I always. So it's just like the eight-year-old who went to see his, came to the room, said, Dad, I got a question. He said, what is this? Where do we come from? He said, oh, no, it's at that time. I've got to have the talk. He says, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I asked mom. He says, what, 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 what did your mom say? He said, well, my mom's, mom said that at one time we were just some, some cells and went through slime and we were lower life forms and over thousands and thousands of years we evolved into what we are today. He said, really? He said, yeah. He said, Dad, what do you say? He said, I say, son, we're made in the image of God. And therefore, we are filled with glory and dignity and honor. And we can express truth and dignity. And he says, well, he says, well, Dad, why, why would Mom say that? He says, son, she's talking about her side of the family. And, uh, <laughs> and some, some, sometimes, sometimes you, you feel that way. I mean, you know, good, always, always. And yet when I think about this, I think there's two reasons Paul is able to say, I always give thanks for you. And there are two reasons we can hold on to. The first is this. 
Paul, Paul could say, I always give thanks for you, knowing with certainty that the Holy Spirit of the living God was at work in the lives of God's people, changing them. Today, we should come with a great expectation. I sometimes don't. That God is walking among us right now. There are going to be issues you hear, you sing, conversations you have, a word of Scripture where the Holy Spirit is going to say, you need to change here and you need to do that. And, and, and if you want to have human flourishing and life and you want to honor me, you do this. See, the Holy Spirit of the living God is at work among us forming and shaping our character. The Holy Spirit of God, there are people here today who do not know Christ as their Savior. They're here because they're here to be with a friend or they're here just to be, you know, just, just to be here. The Holy Spirit is convicting of sin and elevating the name of Christ as the only Savior to a lost world, God in the flesh. And so because of that, we can say with great confidence, I always pray with thanksgiving. Or you go to the book of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a well-known verse where Paul says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm convinced of that. So, so the great joy in my heart is that when I go to sleep at night, God doesn't sleep. The great joy of my heart is as much as I love my children and my wife and you, God loves you much more. The, the Father loves you much more, and we can trust him. The second reason Paul could say always is because there is an observable reality in the life of the Colossae believers that I pray is true of us. Verse 4. So we, we always pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all the saints. Paul says, you know, I always give thanks to you because there's an observable, known reality in your life. You have faith in Christ Jesus, eternal God who died on the cross for your sins, and you love God's people. And when I see people, that's the mark of a believer. You love people, and it flows from the understanding of who Jesus is in your life. It's an amazing it's an observable and known reality. Do you want to cheer the hearts of people around you if you're a believer? Do you want to encourage them and build them up in the Lord? Do you want to bring favor to your life? Do you want to make the living God rejoice over you with singing? Then you have faith in the reality of Jesus that changes your life and you love God's people. Faith in Christ Love for the saints. And there, there's, there's something powerful about people who, out of the overflow of their love for Christ, love you. I'm, I'm going to use an example. I added it to my notes this morning. It's painful for me. It's going to be painful for many of you people here. Yesterday, Clemson lost. And uh, I, I, I watched it, and I was grieving. It was sorrowful to me. It's... Uh, they lost. They lost by one point if you didn't watch the game. With eight seconds to go, a, a guy named Chris Blewett, who's the place kicker, kicked a field goal from 48 yards, and it would have been good from 60 yards. He killed the ball and only watched it one time. I didn't, you don't, you know, make pain go on and on in your life. I watched it one time, turned the TV off, and I thought, anyway. So let me tell you, the, back, the background is that there was a one-point victory, but uh, in the first half, Chris Blewett, the place kicker, was on full scholarship. He was a place kicker. Now, if you don't know the sports, place kicker kicks the ball between the uprights. And, and, uh, and, uh, and after, a point after attempt is just kind of like, eh, it's no big deal. It's, it's automatic. He missed a point after attempt. And there, Pittsburgh's behind one point. He comes to the sidelines, and the coach, whose name is Pat 
Narduzzi, uh, whose father used to be head coach at Youngstown State in Ohio. Pat Narduzzi goes over to him and puts his arm around him, and, sh- and he tells him a joke. They start laughing, and he kisses him twice, kisses the guy twice. And kind of they go on and thought, wow. He's an Italian, and they're very touchy, you know, that kind of stuff. And so he kisses his place kicker, and, and then in the last play of the first half, this is unbelievable. He tries a long-distance field goal, and, and he, he, he kicks it in such a bad way, it hits one of the defenders, uh, one of his offensive linemen in the back. That's just embarrassing. It's like shooting a free throw and not even hit the backboard. It's just bad. And so the game is on the line. He goes in, boom. I thought, Wow. Coach Narduzzi is very bright because he knows there's an incredible empowering when the people around you believe in you. So when you look at your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, in your, I always give thanks for you because theologically the Holy Spirit of God is in your life. And as I walk with you, I see faith in Christ Jesus and love for the saints. And, parenthesis, some of the saints can be very, very difficult to love. So I have three points right now. First of all, this. Faith in Christ Jesus and love for the saints are not ever independent in the mind of God. They go together. Faith in Jesus Christ feeds love for the saints. The book of Colossians is all about the supremacy of Christ. You get to chapter 1, starting in verse 15, there's a, a paragraph that may have been an early hymn in the church. And let me just read a couple of statements. It starts off with, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see the living God and his glory, look at Jesus. And, and, then, he, and then he says in verse 17, uh, and, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. See, do you want your life to sing and have joy and purpose? Then then realize that Christ is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. So recently I was with a young couple I really love and respect very much, and they said, we have some friends who came to you from marital counseling, and the primary thing you talked about was, do you really know and love Christ? And they were kind of laughing and says, they need more tools than do you know Christ. I thought, well, maybe, yeah, yeah, they do. But I I, I do not apologize for when, when I talk to people. The first thing is, do you honor Jesus in your life on a daily basis? Because he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you want your life to be strong and fertile and vital and honoring unto the Lord, you major on the glory of Christ. In Christ, all things hold together. He's before all things, in him all, all things hold together. And he says this, verse 19, for, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He says it again. If you want to see God, look at Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of his cross. And so they're always co-joined, and, and this faith feeds love. Because when you have faith in Jesus Christ, several things happen here. When you have an ongoing glorying in Christ, first of all, you go, wow. Wow, forgiveness of sins through the work of Jesus. Wow. And as you major on Christ, I think you get to a place of self-forgetfulness. It's not about me, it's about him. 
And then as you look at Christ, you look at other people around you, and you think what Paul says in Ephesians 4 when he says, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted and forgiving, just as God has forgiven you in Christ Jesus. So you see, this love for Christ feeds love for people. This faith in the work of Christ feeds love for people. See, one reason it, it, it feeds is that, is that we understand and know that, 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 that love is caring for people in light of the reality of Christ or, or in light of eternity. And if you don't have a foundation for what love looks like, you can become subjectively sentimental and write off in 130 directions. But see, love is caring for people in light of eternity or caring for others in light of the reality of Christ. And I could give you 100 examples, but let me just give you one. Years ago, when President-elect Jimmy Carter, governor of Georgia, was getting ready to go into the White House in 1976, he gave an address to hundreds of people that had just been appointed to positions in administration, and he said, with great earnestness, I want to ask you to quit shacking up with each other and either break up or get married. <laughs> and everybody kind of laughed that the president was using a term at that time that was kind of a trendy term, shacking up, which meant to live together outside of marriage. And at that point, really, when we look at say the demographics, it wasn't that preponderantly obvious in the culture. There were people doing it. Now it's just a tidal wave. It's just a tidal wave. Now it's just standard fare. People just live together in serial monogamy here, a year or two, here, yeah, yeah. And, and yet the scripture doesn't change. The Bible says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. The marriage says, don't commit adultery. And sex is for marriage between a man and a woman. So, so the scripture doesn't change. Therefore, here's my example. Your son goes to a school. We'll say it's your son. And your son is at school for a couple of years, and you're underwriting him being at school. You're paying for his housing, his books, his tuition, so forth and so on. And so you go to see him, and you go to his apartment that you're paying for, and he greets you with his roommate, which is his girlfriend. And you go, oh, we're not in Kansas anymore, type thing. What do you do? Well, see, if love is doing that which is best for other people in light of eternity, this is what you do, in my opinion. You get him in a room with you and your wife, I'm taking two husbands, and you read this verse before you go in, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, go and restore him with a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And you say, really? I'm a sinner speaking to a sinner, and I want to be gentle. I want to be kind. And so you sit down with your son, and you say, you know, there's no one in this circle of us three that doesn't deal with sin. No one. There's no one in this circle that doesn't daily need the grace of God. No one. He says, but I can't be your dad and not address this issue. And as long as you're living like this, I will not pay for your housing. That's what I would do. I just can't do it. Because love is doing that which is best for others in light of the reality of who Jesus is. 
This is our standard. Now, that may make Thanksgiving pretty tenuous. It may make you the most unpopular father in the Tri-County area, but you're honoring God. So, so, so you see, you see it's, it's, it's all about decisions and consequences. C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity. He said this, that, that, that uh, good and evil both increase a compound interest. This is a great statement. That is why the little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which a few months later you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. And he said, trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or a bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. So the decisions we make are very important. So faith in Christ and love are never segmented in the mind of God. But hear this. Without an understanding of my sinfulness and my need for daily grace, if I just have some standards apart from the indwelling, empowering Holy Spirit, I can become unkind and harsh. Don't become unkind or harsh. Be broken, be bold, be sensitive, and be truthful. The only reason more of us have not fallen into dreadful sin is because we've been buttressed and supported by the Spirit of the living God. I need the grace of Christ. So I'm never going to throw stones at people. I'll walk with people, I hope. So so is faith that leads to love. Point number two is, is that this faith and love was visible and known. Again, verse four, he says... We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ and the love you have for all, your, all the saints. You know, he says later in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, uh, he says, He's reconciled us by his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. So, so you come to this passage, you go, you know, it's observable, and, and here's the issue. The issue is that, that, that my faith, your faith, should be an observable reality, and the issue that leads to confidence and the assurance of salvation. The only way I know that I am truly a child of God is that I desire to be honoring to the Lord by being obedient. People can say a prayer or wave a hand or walk an aisle, and those are good things if that corresponds to worship in my heart. But, but, but the only way I know I'm truly in the Lord is if I want to be pleasing to him. Let me just read a couple of quotes. One's from John Calvin, the French reformer who died in 1564, who said, as often as we mention faith alone as our salvation, we are not thinking of a dead faith, which does not work by love. It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. He says, yeah, you're saved by faith alone, but it always produces fruit. And it produced fruit of this church. We've heard of your faith and your love. People know it. They talk about it. Westminster's Confession of Faith, written 100 years after Calvin's death, says, faith thus received and resting on Christ and his righteousness is the alone instrument of our salvation or justification. It's only faith yet. 
It is not alone in the person justified, but is accompanied with other saving graces. And it's not dead faith, but it works by love. James says faith without works is dead, barren, and useless. And so, so I look at this passage and I say, you know, there, there's a visible reality in the life of the believer. If, if you say the Bible very long and have been a believer for a couple of years, somebody's going to always say, wow, I wish somebody would explain Hebrews 6 to me. It's in the New Testament. And I've always thought, I wish somebody would really explain it to me too. Hebrews 6 is a tough passage. It talks about the, the book of Hebrews is written to people that are kind of waffling and slipping away. And so it's a stark reminder of the people we should be. But in chapter 6, the writer says that it's impossible to restore again to repentance those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the Word of God. Said, well, explain that. It says it's impossible for them to come back. I said, well, in my opinion, this passage never says they were truly regenerate. It says they, they came close, but they didn't really get in. They, came, they heard it, but they didn't get in. But then he makes a couple of application statements. He says this in verse 7 and 8. For ground that drinks the rain that often falls upon it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. And so the writer said, listen, when you receive the good gifts of God and the Holy Spirit's work in your life, you, you produce fruit. And, and then he says this to the church. He says, though we speak in this way, and yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your good work. And the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. He said, you know, we're convinced that this passage doesn't apply to you. Because we're convinced that you're truly born again. Because of the way you live your life. This I read a few months ago and a few weeks ago. It was just a brief statement. Things Christians just don't get to do. And the writer mentions ten. I'll just read a few. Things Christians don't get to do. Number one, Christians don't get to hold a grudge. You've got two options. When a person commits an offense against you, you can overlook it or you can confront the individual. Number two, Christians don't get to withhold forgiveness. When a person seeks your forgiveness, you are duty bound to forgive him. Even if that person sins against you repeatedly, and seeks forgiveness each time. You're equally duty-bound to extend forgiveness. You don't get to give them the silent treatment and to withhold concern for them. Next, Christians don't get to hoard their wealth. Christians can and should earn money. When given the opportunity, Christians can and should earn more rather than less money. There's no intrinsic value in poverty and no intrinsic trouble with wealth. But Christians are not to hoard their wealth. Rather, they are to bless others and extend the kingdom. Next, Christians don't get to complain. 
Grumbling is a favorite sin of many. Some go as far as to treat it as the kind of virtue. Just think of the late night TV and the grumbling that goes on there under the banner of comedy. But the Bible reveals grumbling as a problem of the heart and a behavior that is unsuited to the Christian. The book of Philippians says, quote, do all things without grumbling. Next, Christians don't get to do it or go it alone. There is an independent streak deep within the human heart, a desire to go it alone in life. Yet Christians are commanded to form themselves into churches and communities of believers who share life together. Lone Christians are disobedient to God's call to community. And last, Christians don't get to be unproductive. Laziness and lack of productivity are rarely far from us. It's hard to be active and Easy to be distracted. There's always a reason to veer away from our responsibilities and toward entertainment. But Christians don't get to be lazy. They don't get to be unproductive. I thought, so true. God has called us to a standard. Point number three is that the hope of heaven and the continuous understanding of the gospel feeds my soul and elevates the reality of Christ and love for the saints. And I would say to you that there are many days that go by when I don't think about heaven. And that's sin. That takes away part of the energy that God wants to pour into my life by the Spirit. I I have in my mind, not on paper, a bucket list of things I would like to do. Before I die, I would like to see the Grand Canyon. I've never seen the Grand Canyon. I've heard it's phenomenal. But if I don't get to see the Grand Canyon, I believe at every turn in heaven, there are going to be vistas that eclipse the Grand Canyon. Is that amazing to you? I would like to go to New Zealand. Uh, Since watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I thought, man, I want to go to New Zealand and meet Gandalf and Bilbo and Samwise and the whole gang, you know. But uh, New Zealand, I would like to go to New Zealand. I don't think I'll necessarily make it, but I'd like to do that. Um, we had a family here this morning from Brazil. They said, you should have said Brazil. You ever been to Brazil? I said, no, I've never been to Brazil. They said, you should have said Brazil. I'll stick with New Zealand. That's beside the point. Uh, this past Tuesday, I was leaving the house fairly early. My wife is up making some food. And I said, what's going on? She says, well, I've got to get to prayer. And then uh, the ladies are going to have a big breakfast. Everybody's bringing homemade food for breakfast. I said, oh, really? Hmm. What, what time would y'all be eating that homemade breakfast? She said, 9.30. I went, oh, okay. And I, I just happened to be at 9.30. My calendar was clear. I decided to make a pastoral visit. So I, I, I go into this room and it is decked out. I mean, it is homemade. It is so good. And it's all covered. And so I make the rounds thinking, well, it's time to uncover it. Come on. Wait about 10 minutes. They're ready to start. And I'm obviously the only guy there. And I thought, shoot. So I pulled my wife aside and said, please make me a plate and bring it to the office. I am starving. You know, Monday was fast day. Didn't eat that much last night. I'm melting here. I'm just, I'm about to die right here. So she brought me this plate of food, and it was so good. On that plate of food, though, the last thing I ate was a muffin. Now, I like muffins. This was a blueberry muffin, and I bit into it and almost passed out with ecstasy. 
It was so good. And I just thought, oh, my soul. And, and so I ate it. And as soon as it was over, I said to my wife, who made those muffins? And she said, well, they, we didn't put our name underneath the dish, this dish prepared. I said, so you don't know? She said, I don't know. So if you made that muffin, thank you. I want to be your friend. I really do. But, but I'm staring. I'm eating that. And I'm studying this passage as I'm, as I'm eating this muffin. And, and I thought, Lord, this muffin is good, but this is nothing compared to the manna of heaven. Think about it. No fallen taste buds. I need to have the hope of heaven in my breast. It energizes. It encourages. So here, so, so as you're driving, adopt an acrostic that has the letter H in it and just thank God for heaven and say, God, make me have me mind. I, think, I thought of hope this morning on the way to church. The hope of heaven. Hope, heaven. The glory of heaven. Oh, the omniscience, all-knowing, omnipresent God who is eternal and unchanging. P, the, the, the fact that God has called us to be people who, who persevere and who are productive and, and who live for him as we have the hope of heaven. E, as we will be enthusiastic for all the, the things the Lord has given us. God, make me a person of heavenly-minded, understanding the omniscience of God who perseveres and lives with enthusiasm. But, 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 but heaven, and I, I, I say to you, I, I, I need that in my life and my soul. So let me close very quickly. I've run over time a little bit, but I understand this is, this is faith in Christ Jesus. I meet people all the time and we talk and they say they're religious and they have faith in this system or that system. There is only one way to be made right with the living God and that is through the, the work of the cross of Jesus who died as our substitute. And I'll talk to people frequently and they'll say, well, but, but people are so sincere. Now let me give you an example. Let's say that you're between building A and building B. You've got to get to building B. It's 35 feet, so you can't jump it. And so you, you kind of have a fear of heights, and, and you're already kind of on your knees thinking, I, I can't do this because the building is 35 stories up. And somebody comes there, and they've got a board that is that wide and that thick that could hold a tank. And they put it from building A to building B, and you go across it. And, and yet... You're, you're, you're trembling and you're on your hands and your knees and you inch by inch by inch by, and you make it. You make it. Conversely, they bring out the next person who loves heights and who's a daredevil in his heart. He goes to Disney World and rides Space Mountain 33 times nonstop. And, and so he, he likes heights. It's no big deal. But they put out a two-by-four for him that is old and infested with bugs and is crumbling and he has great faith in that board and has no fear and so he takes one step another step the board crashes he goes to the bottom hear this faith with questions but faith in a strong board gets you across strong faith in the wrong board leads to destruction I've lived in Muslim areas. I've been to Muslim areas. Once a year, the, the well-meaning Muslims observe one of the five pillars of Islam, Ramadan. For 29 or 30 days, they'll eat breakfast, and they'll abstain from any liquid or any food until sundown. That's amazing to me because a lot of the places I've been uh, where the Muslims live, it's a very arid, desert-like area. That'd be very difficult not to drink during the day. I, can't, I don't know how they do it. But they do it. 
And they do it to achieve favor with Allah. And we know from this passage, the only way to achieve favor with the God who is, is to trust in the work of Christ as your substitute on the cross. You see, halting faith with questions in the reality of Christ gets you to heaven. Strong faith in that which is not truth does not. I had the chance to live in Singapore, and I had Muslim or Hindu and Muslim friends, but, but Hindus will, will, will take fish hooks, put oranges on the end of the fish hook string, plunge it into their skin, take rods, stick it through their jaw to, to, to placate the God or to make a deal with one of their many gods. There's only one way to be covered from the judgment that should be fall upon us, and that is through the work of Christ. Not what we do, it's what he's done for us. Don't miss that. You see, halting faith, question faith, and the reality of Jesus gets you to heaven. You'll see many people in our community, well-meaning, gracious, caring, intelligent, kind, young men, young men with, with white shirts and black ties riding bicycles from the Church of Latter-day Saints Mormons. And then they believe Christ was a created being. They believe Christ was a, a, a wonderful person who through self-effort became like God, and so can we have no concept of the work of Christ on the cross for their sins. And they believe that, and they make wonderful neighbors and wonderful senators and congressmen and, and whatever. They're noble people in many ways, but they're trusting in a board that's going to crumble. There's only one board that saves, and that's faith in the finished work of Jesus. So, so, so as we study this book, behold the majesty of Jesus. Behold the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Behold the hope that is ours through Christ. Behold the glory of heaven through Christ. And let us live with boldness and intentionality and grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the church at Colossae, a tiny band of people who Paul said were known for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. May that be true of us. Teach us how to love out of the overflow of the worship of Jesus. Teach us how to love difficult people. And we all have difficult people in our lives. Uh, teach us how to love, and, and teach us how the, the, how the hope of heaven energizes and refreshes and carries us along. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the mercy of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.